name is Melissa, and I'm your host for True Crime Asia. Every episode, I'll be walking you through one crime from one country. Not only will we learn about these miscellaneous misdeeds, we'll also work through how they relate to our overall perceptions of Asia. For those of you who've been listening since I first started the podcast, it's been a while since we last spoke. 2017 was not an easy year for me, but I'm back and ready to start releasing these regularly. More about this at the end of the episode. Before we continue, I want to shout out our new Apple Podcast reviews from Alena Lee, Jiajiangmian, Murasaki underscore Tree Tree, Desadova ninety nine, Beauty Ball, Bitter Queer, Metal Swift, Utilitarian Femme, Drinking Irish Tonight, RX Shelley, Dilly Bar nineteen seventy two, KT May, D Bad forty four, and Universal Worst. Nothing makes me happier and more encouraged to continue than reading your notes. This episode is our first foray into direct foreign influence on a country's judicial process in wake of a tragedy. There's no way for this to not sound glib, but today we're going to a toilet and a Burger King in South Korea. Today's story took place in 1997, but to truly understand the judicial process after the fact, we need to go back to the end of World War II, when North Korea and South Korea officially became divided. Very loosely, Russia declared war with Japan at the end of World War II, which occupied Korea at the time. The United States became concerned that Korea would become communist after a victory, so they asked Russia to stop occupation midway through the country. As a result, the north of Korea had a communist influence, and the south of Korea had a capitalist American influence. Now, in 1950, the United States backed South Korea in the Korean War. This was the resistance against the north's invasion of the south. An armistice was finally signed in 1953 between the United Nations Command, North Korea's People's Army, and China's People's Volunteer Army. Though, I should add that no peace treaty was actually signed, and as a result, many still consider this an active, ongoing war. 1953 marked a more formal military relationship between the United States and South Korea. There are currently over 23,000 U.S. troops in the country. To put this in perspective, South Korea is seven times smaller than the state of Texas. 23,000 troops. As you can imagine, there has been a testy relationship between the U.S. military forces and South Korean citizens. A lot of these grievances are based on the Status of Forces Agreement, the SOFA, under which the U.S. military is allowed to operate in the country. There's a stereotype of American soldiers feeling entitled and above the law in foreign countries due to SOFAs like the one between the U.S. and South Korea. That exact psychology may well have been a motivating factor of the murderer that we're about to discuss. Or murderers. It depends who you believe. So it's April 3rd, 1997. A group of teenagers are partying in Itaewon, a popular nightlife spot in Seoul, particularly amongst foreigners. Around 10 p.m., the group decides to head to the Burger King on the first floor of the building that they're in. After eating, two of the teens head to the bathroom together, beginning a decades-long nightmare for the family of the man they would run into in the next five minutes. The two teens are 17-year-old Arthur John Patterson, a mixed Korean-American whose father was a military contractor, and 18-year-old Korean-American Edward Lee. They are the only two people on the planet who know exactly what happened in that bathroom that night. But what we do know is that while they were inside, one of them stabbed 22-year-old university student Cho Chung-pil 
in the neck and chest nine times with Arthur Patterson's pocket knife. Neither of them knew this man, but both of them left him for dead. They returned to their friends, Patterson covered head to toe in blood, and lay with blood splatter on his clothes. With the night now over, in a nightmarish fashion, Patterson disposed of his pocket knife in a drain at the nearby American military base. He burned his clothes afterwards, while Lee's mother put his clothes in the washing machine. Cho Chung Pil's body was found immediately, being in a high-trafficked Burger King downtown, and naturally, Arthur Patterson and Edward Lee were taken in as suspects. This is when a series of blunders began to complicate the investigation. Get ready, because this legal ride is fast-paced and full of twists. First of all, the police interrogating them didn't speak English particularly well, which was a problem for both parties. They even alleged that it was an American gang-style killing and that Patterson may have been involved in a foreign gang. At the same time, Patterson and Lee both insisted that the other person had committed the crime, but it was impossible to say who was telling the truth, in spite of the blood splatter in the bathroom. According to Patterson, Lee entered the bathroom with his pocket knife and looked into the bathroom stall to see if anyone was in there, and upon seeing Cho in there, Lee stabbed him. According to Lee, he was washing his hands in the bathroom and saw Patterson kill Cho through the mirror. The evidence was mixed. Patterson was shorter than both Lee and Cho, and the knife wound seemed to indicate that a taller person had committed the crime. Patterson and Lee's group of friends reported that Lee had been cajoling Patterson into killing someone for fun all day. When interrogated, two of Patterson and Lee's friends said that they heard Patterson state, I killed a man, after leaving the bathroom. By the end of April, Lee was indicted for the murder, and Patterson was indicted for being an accomplice with a deadly weapon and destruction of evidence. In October of that year, Lee was sentenced to life in prison. Patterson was sentenced to 18 months for his crime, with a one-year stay of execution. But in January the next year, Patterson decided to abandon that appeal and serve his sentence. As luck would have it, a special pardon releasing 2,000 convicts in prison meant that he was let go in October 1988. As luck would have it, a special pardon releasing 2,000 convicts in prison meant that he was let go in October 1998. But at the same time, the Seoul High Court had acquitted Lee of all charges due to a lack of evidence. Legally speaking, there was now no perpetrator of the crime. Angered by the circumstances, the Cho family brought a complaint against Patterson as being the murderer. But due to negligence on the part of the prosecution, they forgot to request a stay for Patterson's travel ban, meaning that Patterson was able to escape back to his home in California. Their mistake caused furor in South Korea, and the extradition process wasn't an easy one. The government paid the Cho family $34,000 in damages as a result of their error. Many South Korean citizens were sure that the U.S. military relationship with their country would make it impossible for Patterson to be brought back. After requests in 2000 and 2002 for the U.S. Justice Department to extradite Arthur Patterson, it wasn't until 2005 that the Justice Department alleged they weren't able to locate him. Memory of Cho Chong-pil's horrific murder was fading fast, as was the chance for Patterson to be tried. The statute of limitations on murder in South Korea was 15 years at the time of Cho's murder. It's now 25, meaning that any chance for Patterson to be prosecuted had to be done before 2012. 
but Patterson's luck started running out in 2009. The case resurfaced in Korean pop culture with the release of a film called The Case of the Itaewon Homicide. A few names were changed, Arthur John Patterson to Robert J. Pearson, Edward Lee to Alex A.J. Jung, but its popularity renewed interest and anger in the murder case. The same month of the film's release, a reality television crew capitalized on its success by hunting down Arthur Patterson in a TV special. They accomplished what the U.S. Justice Department apparently wasn't able to, locating Patterson in his Sunnyvale, California home. In 2010, in light of the public interest, a new request was made for Patterson to be extradited. In October of 2011, a news outlet reported that one of Patterson's friends had met with him over lunch and extracted a confession from him on tape. I'm not sure if this tape was actually admissible in the following trial, but I'm certain it played a part in the U.S. Department of Justice's eventual agreement to extradite him. It was 2012, and Patterson, now in his 30s, fought the extradition with a writ of habeas corpus. Essentially, Patterson was saying that he was unlawfully detained and the government would have to prove he was responsible. Patterson also cited the SOFA between the United States and South Korea, claiming that the previous destruction of evidence charges would constitute a double jeopardy if he was charged again for the murder. More likely than not, this move was an attempt to run out the clock on the statute of limitations. But the prosecution against Patterson convinced the U.S. that because they had agreed to extradite him already, even before Patterson invoked habeas corpus, the clock was stopped, so to speak, on the 15th year since the crime. You can read the prosecution's petition to the U.S. government in the bibliography for this episode. In 2015, Patterson was taken back to Seoul, where he and Lee would meet once again. A mock-up of the toilet was built in the Seoul prosecutor's office, and both Patterson and Lee were told to reenact what they claimed happened to a panel. Lee's claim of washing his hands was met with skepticism from Patterson's lawyer, who said that there was no water or blood found pooling in the sink. He also pointed out that if Lee had been washing his hands, there would have been no room for anyone to exit the toilet stall, and thus no room for anyone to be attacked behind him as well. The prosecution had no rebuttal to these statements, which seemed to be a good thing for Patterson. As for the man himself, he was calm and refused a jury trial, insisting that the evidence would prove he was innocent. In Patterson's own words, It's not right that Joe's family has to go through this pain over and over, but it's not right that I'm here either. But in January 2016, Patterson was indeed found guilty for the murder of Cho Chung-pil, and Lee was determined to be an accomplice who had been goading Patterson into the murder. In a sick twist, despite demonstrating Lee's complicity, having been charged previously for the murder, he was unable to be recharged due to the double jeopardy laws that Patterson himself had once tried to cite. Patterson's lawyer tried to appeal the verdict, citing an inability to subpoena witnesses who lived in the United States, as well as the contentious statute of limitations decision, but the conviction was upheld earlier this year, 2017. Because Patterson was underage at the time of the crime, the maximum penalty which he could receive for the murder was 20 years in prison, which he's currently serving. Yeah. 
그게 20년 형 최고 형이라니까 마음이 좀 후련하고 그냥 좋아요. That was Lee Bokso, the mother of Cho Chong-pil, speaking to reporters outside the courtroom after Patterson's conviction. In that same statement, she would later say, I hope my son can be born wealthy in this next life so that he can do everything he wishes to do and also help others in need, just as he was helped by many after he died. My cousin Grace spoke to some of her friends in South Korea and was kind enough to translate their sentiments for me. Every one of their thoughts in the crime included their thoughts on the U.S.-Korea military relationship. In their own words, many Koreans were angry when they heard about the incident and very unhappy with the heavy U.S. military presence in Korea. Koreans felt that the U.S. troops in Korea were dangerous, that Americans pride themselves as superior to Koreans. The Korean government seemed to be always on the side of the American army, that they let things slide and don't impose penalties on them. We felt like the Korean government was powerless against the U.S. There is a history of the U.S. shielding their troops from crimes all throughout Asia. In 2002, two soldiers in South Korea were tried and acquitted in the United States after running over two teenage girls in an armored vehicle. The popular South Korean film, The Host, satirized the environmental pollution that the military has created in South Korea, which the Korean government has to spend money to clean up. But to be completely frank, on a surface level, there's very little interference on the part of the SOFA with regards to this particular case. It certainly drew out the pain of the victim's family, there's no doubt about that, with the inability to subpoena the children of military personnel. But that ended up working against Patterson in the end, as he couldn't get enough witnesses for his defense. At the end of the day, however, The only people who know what happened in that bathroom stall are Patterson and Lee themselves. Had Patterson actually managed to prevent his extradition, then yes, um, maybe I would argue that under the terms of the SOFA he benefited greatly. But fortunately, it seems that the Department of Justice made the right call at the last possible second. Their inability to find him in 2005, though? That's probably a case of them protecting their own. Overall, this judicial nightmare stemmed from human error and carelessness. But there is more than good reason for the people of Korea to add this crime to a laundry list of insults to their country. The tensions exist to this day. As the alleged threat from North Korea grows, the United States ramps up their presence in South Korea. While Cho Jong-pil was murdered two decades ago, new anguishes continue to be born all over the country from this violent diplomatic matrimony. The most recent and visible of which, of course, is the installation of the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System in Songju County. As a safeguard meant to shoot down any ballistic missiles North Korea might launch, the construction of the THAAD has resulted in several violent clashes between the police and the villagers of Sosongri, who have become its unwilling neighbors. Many of the elderly residents of Sosongri were survivors of the Korean War, where they witnessed American brutality firsthand. As a result of the THAAD's proximity to North Korea, these citizens are now afraid that they will be the first victims of retaliation in any future war. While there's no way I can give a thorough account of THAAD's genesis and effects here in this episode, it, like the belated charges against Arthur Patterson, the vagueness of the witness statements and the murder, is another soul-crushing example of how people without power, 
how most of us feel helpless to military machinations. Just because something is made legal does not mean it makes us safe. If the United States wants to maintain friendly relations with South Korea, a great step would be revising the terms of the SOFA to add clarity and more culpability for wrongdoers. A national security law brief from American University student Jimmy Koo, which will be made available in my citations online, has a great list of suggestions for how we can improve this. The name of his brief? The Uncomfortable SOFA. A brilliant term for an upsetting agreement, and only one part of the U.S.-Korea military treaty. The current Korean government seems to be allowing America to beef up their physical influence in the country, while the actual civilians seem to be growing more uneasy by the day. If only it were so easy as to take the SOFA out. Laws don't work like that. Their effects are not undone as soon as we revoke them. When a bad law gets reversed or fixed or annulled, there is an instinct to cheer and see it as a victory. But it isn't a true victory if we move on and immediately view it as a thing of the past. Its effects continue to be felt, like vibrations of a taut string that gets plucked. Relations with Korea, both North and South, have changed tremendously over the past 15 to 20 years. They're changing now in ever more urgent and even dangerous ways. In a globalized present, it's important to remember that our movements are undeniably shaped by these foreign treaties, whether we like it or not, no matter how invisible they seem. So the next time a law gets passed, especially an international one where there is a clear power imbalance between the participants, ask yourself, how long is that note going to be held? Who will hear it ringing in their ears for the rest of their life? And will you choose to listen? And on that note, happy holidays. New episodes of True Crime Asia will be released every other week, wherever you're subscribed. To access our bi-weekly bonus episodes and bibliographies, head to patreon.com slash truecrimeasia. While I love that podcasts are a largely free medium, democratizing information, etc., etc., it does cost money to keep the podcast up on Squarespace, especially since I want to keep this ad free. If just 18 of you listeners pledged $1 a month, after 12 months, that would keep True Crime Asia online for a whole year. Patreon donations will also get you access to cool things, like the aforementioned bonus episodes, fortnightly newsletters about true crime in Asia, my undying devotion, and even handwritten postcards from me once a month. Again, that's patreon.com slash truecrimeasia. True Crime Asia is created, edited, and researched by Melissa Powers. This episode was co-written with my friend Katya. The theme song is Lasha Kyopianga by George Frederick Condal, performed by Bert Alink. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and please write a review. I will shout you out in the next episode. Join the conversation on our Facebook page and private discussion group. I would love to hear who you think committed the crime and whether or not the judicial process was fair. Till next time, see you sooner rather than later.